were dead in sin, but now we're alive in Him and reigning with Christ. Sing to the Lord, give thanks for His kindness. Sing to the Lord, all children of God. The Spirit's available, He'll help us prevail through all that life throws our way. smell if you didn't know. Um, yes, good morning. Sorry, I'd lost my train of thought for a second there. Um, you know, we have an amazing God, um, and we also have some amazing volunteers in this church, people that give their time to serve because they just love serving God. And so I just really want to welcome Melly up on the stage, and he doesn't know I'm doing this. So, Phyllis, could you give him a bit of a nudge? And he'll probably be really cross with me that I'm doing this. But my friend Mally is just awesome. I know, I know, I know. And um, Mally has worked extremely hard to make our youth, our youth lounge just look absolutely incredible. Like, I can't 
begin to thank you because it just has changed so much from this really drab, full of blue tack walls with holes in it to this beautiful space where we can come together and just worship God in a space just for us. So thank you so much. Pleasure. And um, the young people want to come and say thank you as well. have to say anything. It's all right, you've still got a couple of minutes because we're going to take up our offering now. So one of the reasons that we give is so that things like the, um, the building can be decorated. So um, just talk um, about amongst yourselves and then hopefully we'll get some mics um, sorted out. So we'll take up the offering, please. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four, five. I don't want to blast your eardrums now. <laughs> okay. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for all the good things that you have given us and blessed us. For our families, friends, the food we eat, fresh running water, the warmth of our homes, the sun, the rain, the trees, the flowers, the parks and woodlands, and for our beautiful beach and seafront. We thank you for your goodness and patience with us day by day. But most of all, we thank you for your boundless love in the gift of your son, Jesus, our saviour, our healer, our rock, our teacher, and our closest friend. May these gifts of money and those given through other means be used to bless others and spread the word of your gospel in our church, 
in our town and throughout the world. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's continue to be quiet and still before God as we prepare ourselves for worship. I love to sit in my conservatory early in the mornings. Sometimes it's still dark, depending on the time of the year. The other morning, the moon was still visible, brightly reflecting the sun's light. This reminded me of something I'd read in a book called 100 Days of Thankfulness. Waking up to a beautiful sunrise is so promising. The air is quiet. Birds are beginning to stir in their nests. The moon is fading away as the sun's rays slowly overtake the sky. It's as if God hit the restart button and we are powering up for a new day, a new beginning. Our batteries are charged. The things of yesterday are gone and God is unveiling a chance to start anew. Today is a blank page, crisp and clean and ready for a beautiful story to unfold. So let's draw near to God and he will draw near to us as we pray. Lord, draw near to us. We are here to spend this time with you. We long for you. There is nothing that compares to your presence. Please come and fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, search us and see if there is any evil way in us. We confess to you the wrong things we have done. We confess to you the times that we have not put to you first. Help us by your Holy Spirit living in us to be more patient, more forgiving, more kind more understanding and more generous. Help us to learn from yesterday's mistakes and to keep our focus on you. We thank you for your goodness, for your love and forgiveness, for your grace and mercy which is new every morning. Thank you that you are good all the time. We will still make mistakes. We can never be enough, but you are enough, Jesus. Thank you that you forgive us again and again. Thank you for a fresh new start each day. Thank you that we are loved. 
thank you that when we feel broken, you are our strength. Thank you that when we fall, we are held by your grace. When we feel worthless, we find our worth in you. Thank you that we belong to you. In you, we find our identity. Our lives make no sense without you. Thank you for the promise that we have that one day we will be made anew in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.
Let the King of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from always my soul. Let the King of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life always my soul. You are good. Oh
God, that you are good. You are so good. Your love endures forever. Your love and goodness never runs out. Just thank God in your own words for his goodness and how he provides for our every need. Yes, Lord, you are good. You are good. Thank you. As we sing this next song, if you're a little unsure of the tune, just let the words rush over you. Just let them wash over you and just be overwhelmed with the goodness of God and join in when you can.
really matters we surrender to you Jesus we want to know you more 
We want to be closer to you. It's all about you, Jesus. You just want to be near us and we just want to be near you. You want to be the centre of our lives, the lead part in the story of our lives, to be the reason that we live. Jesus, be the centre. reading this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, starting at verse 8. I'm at verse 1, actually. <laughs> Israel requests a king. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. 
Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. Samuel warns against a kingdom. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plough in the fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. So as um, Peter comes up to speak to us, I'll just pray for you. Lord, I just pray that you will anoint Peter with your spirit. Mm. May he open up this word to us. Mm. May his words be your words. And may we take them into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you again. It's been a, a few months since I was last here. Uh, I bring greetings from the congregation at Park Baptist Church, and I'm delighted to hear that you've got some exciting news uh, and a uh, new season ahead for the church. It really is very exciting when uh, a church discerns together that God has called a person to, to minister among them, and so I uh, I'm excited for you in the months ahead and, and continue to pray for you uh, and uh, your new minister. So perhaps it's um, apt, appropriate this morning then, that our passage addresses the issue of leadership and the gap that can often exist between what we want and what God wants. 
Now, of course, the Bible doesn't speak with one voice on the matter of leadership. Just a quick flick through it, and you could quite easily manipulate um, any number of verses, small passages of text, to justify really virtually any style of leadership, from um, dictatorships, basically, all the way down to small house church uh, models with shared decision-making structures. But when we look through Scripture as a whole, we notice that it may not speak with one voice about leadership, but its heart is very different from where much of our culture and even many of our churches are at. So we're going to explore that a little bit more this morning. And just to liven things up a little bit, and because pantomime season is just around the corner, oh yes it is, I thought I'd get a little bit of congregation participation going. And it also, of course, ensures that you all stay awake for the next 15 minutes or so. So I'm going to say throughout my sermon a few times, five or six times, I'm going to say, what do we want? And I would like you to say back to me, a king. And when I say, when do we want him? I'd like you to reply, now. Should we do a little practice? What do we want? When do we want him? What do we want? When do we want him? Very good. Oh, very good. You've all passed with flying colours. You've definitely got the hang of that. So pay attention for when that pops up over the course of this message. Now, of course, a king and the call for a king is rather topical for us as a nation at the moment. The recent accession of King Charles and um, only last week with the latest release of uh, The Crown. Have we got any avid watchers of the Netflix show The Crown? Anyone watch it? A very small handful. Okay, anyone binged watch the latest season yet? Anyone dare to even put their hand up to that? Perhaps not. Now for those of you which seems like the vast majority um, have managed to avoid Uh, the crown, the latest season has caused its fair share of controversy for its fairly creative manipulation of events in the life of the royal family during the 1990s. Not least a scene where the then Prince Charles attempts to persuade the then PM, John Major, to back his attempt at becoming king now and forcing the Queen to abdicate. What did he want, a king, and when did he want it, now? Now, the role of leaders is clearly important. But why they're important and what function they have is much more complicated. And much like the series of The Crown, which explores as one of its overarching themes the question of what function does the royal family have, so too does our passage question the function and place of leaders for God's people. And so we too are asked, what do we want? When do we want him? Very good. The nation of Israel is worried. 
anxious. Because its long-time leader, Samuel, the great man of God, the prophet, the judge, is old. Really old. Queen Elizabeth, old. And his sons are losers. They're wasters. They're playboys. They're corrupt. Devoid of honor and righteousness. Those pillars that had come to typify their father's leadership. Partying instead of paying attention to what was happening in the country. This is starting to actually sound like an episode of The Crown. Who is going to step in to the great man's shoes when the inevitable happens and Samuel breathes his last? Now I imagine that most of us will recognize life has enough of its own anxieties at the best of time. But in ancient Israel, the cost of living crisis was the least of their problems. Because their neighbors weren't exactly friendly. Invasion loomed as a very real possibility. And when invasions happened, they were bloodthirsty. They were not right, we're in charge now, we're taking over the government. They were, we're in charge now, and you either submit or you get killed. And sometimes you get killed anyway, depending on who had invaded. And so the people are worried. They're asking, well, what's going to become of us with these new idiots in charge? There's anxiety, desperation about where the country is heading. That sounds familiar as well, actually. <laughs> now, at this point, it's natural to look around and to see what others are doing and to formulate a plan. Now, the Israelites are not ones for mincing their words. They call a spade a spade, and they don't hold back even when talking to Samuel. You're old, they tell him. We don't want your sons. We want to be like everyone else around here and have a king who's going to fight our battles and be in charge. I can't imagine it was Samuel's most affirming moment of his ministry. In his commentary on this chapter, David Runcorn points out that this expression is not a desire to turn from democracy to monarchy. Because if you are familiar with Samuel's style of leadership, if you uh, uh, kind of uh, want to read around it uh, in your spare time, you get a pretty autocratic view. Samuel was in charge, and that was that. And he could get a bit shirty sometimes. So the people actually just want to move from one form of autocracy to another. This isn't some kind of a breakthrough Magna Carta moment where the people rise up and demand some form of say. It's exactly what you might think from people who've been trapped in one form of dependent relationship and now they need another. Now I understand that the psychological term for this is called learned helplessness. And part of this involves times when people uh, don't believe that they can exercise 
free choice for themselves. And we have a situation here where collectively, the people have become so used to this autocratic, authoritarian style of leadership that they now crave it. Fortunately, Samuel does what you would expect of a godly leader, and he prays. But God's reply is also pretty blunt. Imagine sort of Samuel feels a little bit squeezed at this point because the people aren't being particularly pleasant, and God's reply is pretty blunt to him as well. And actually, when we read God's reply, when I read God's reply to Samuel in our passage, it makes me think of an old referee that used to ref a lot of our football matches. Now, I liked this ref, which is quite unusual. I tend not to like most refs that ref my games. They tend not to particularly like me either, I think. Um, But I like this ref because he used to allow the game to flow. And he was fairly lenient with, how do we describe, uh, my robust approach to tackling. My slightly physical attempts at winning the ball back. But inevitably, there would be times when I would just ever so fractionally kind of be a bit overzealous. Maybe I've gone just a teensy bit too far. Or I'd question something that I felt he'd missed. And he'd call me over for a chat. And he would always start his chats with the words, Look, old mate. Look, old mate. And then he would explain why it really wasn't worth my time arguing with him. If you remember uh, the management of Brian Clough, he kind of had that similar style of, you can argue with me, but at the end of the day, we will agree that I'm right and you're wrong. And when I read this part of the passage in Samuel, I hear that ref's exasperated voice once again. As God says, patiently, but perhaps a little exasperated to Samuel, look, old mate, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. It's not you they have a problem with, it's me. If they want a king, so be it. Let them have one. But if they're going to have a king, you'd better spell it out for what they let themselves in for. And so Samuel returns to the people, and of course, they say, what do we want? When do we want him? And so Samuel then says, well, if you have a leader, sorry, a king, this is what you're really going to get. And he spells out what is quite a frank description of the dangers of unaccountable power. Because the king will take, take, take. He'll take your sons and he'll turn them into soldiers. And not only that, he's going to establish a rigid hierarchy of command and they'll be like cogs in a machine that they can't control. He will take your daughters and with fairly crude gender stereotyping, make them perfumers and cooks and bakers in his court. Now they should have smelled a rat, but their noses were full of other odours. 
Because this king, whoever he might be, will also take the best of your land and produce in tax. And he'll distribute it to his favorites in a system that will welcome corruption and encourage greed. You will work hard to build up his wealth. And he'll work hard to give it away to others as he calls in his favors. And then he's going to take the best of your servants and your livestock. And when all this happens, you will cry out to God about how awful it all is. And God will say, well, I told you so. I warned you this was going to happen. Is that really what you want? And the people said, what do we want? When do we want him? Now in our society, leadership is very fashionable. Strong leadership is admired and desired in business, in politics, and in the church. But such a desire is another indicator of anxiety. We are anxious as a society. Maybe anxious to meet targets, anxious to make money, anxious maybe for power, maybe for reassurance that the buck doesn't stop with me, that I can pass it on up the chain of command. Strangely though, given this and I think quite generally speaking, the desire amongst Christians to try and find a biblical mandate for everything, to ensure that positions of office sometimes have these biblically sounding titles, leader itself is not a particularly biblical word. When you think how much we love leaders and, and read books about leadership, there's conferences on leadership. When you train for ministry, time is spent talking about leadership. What kind of leader are you going to be? It's not a particularly biblical word. We struggle to find it at all in the original Hebrew or Greek. Sometimes our English translations um, often translate those words towards the ends of the letter to the Hebrews with the term leaders or leadership. But the, uh, the Greek word that's actually used there originally is the word hegumenos. And it only occurs a couple of times in the New Testament. And its origin is not uh, uh, from church life, it's from Greek politics. And it usually means a chief or a prince. In Roman terms, it was like a, a governor. And the closest association we get, kind of the derivative in our language today, is the word hegemony. And if you look that up in the dictionary, you'll find it means dominance, especially of one nation or social group over another. It's got an ideological edge to it. The domination of one view at the expense of all the others. It's not the most pleasant word. And I think it's something that runs as a bit of an undercurrent through our passage in 1 Samuel. Now, 
I guess I should point out, because you probably will, some of you will go and flick through the letter of the Hebrews and find out where that is. If you're diligent and you question the sermons that you hear, which is good, you should be doing that. When it's used in Hebrews, it's more likely being used in a more general and inform, informal way. Not talking about particular position, but those that sort of demonstrate leadership through the way they live their Christian lives. So despite sermons that you may have heard on um, Nehemiah maybe, classic uh, text often used for leadership sermons and, and series. Maybe you've done Bible studies on Moses' leadership technique. Even management courses that sometimes are done in a, in a secular work environment but that show Jesus was ahead of his time in handling the disciples and managing them. There's not as much direct stuff in the Bible about leadership as many of us assume. The way we use it is quite a modern way. We use it when, just like Israel in our passage, we look around at our neighbours, we look around our society, and we fancy a bit of what they're having. When we say, what do we want? When do we want him? I think a lot of what we mean about leadership um, is a reflection of often hidden anxieties. And I think a lot of it uh, has Hollywood to blame. What was perhaps once the, uh, the Bruce Willis die-hard all-action figure of the sort of 80s and maybe early 90s has kind of been replaced in the last decade by the sort of Marvel and DC superhero figures. But I think both have a lot to answer for. Because when we look for leadership, does the image we have more closely resemble the Avengers than the Scriptures? Is it more Jason Bourne than Jesus Christ? The world that these films create it is a conflicted, a dangerous one, and it needs a hero. And through that hero, we see the real world and our own issues. And we think, well, if I'm not that hero, then I need a hero. And so it's no surprise that kind of subconsciously we import quite a bit of this sort of stuff into church life if we're not careful. Never question whether our desire for a king is in some way a reflection of 1 Samuel 8. A turning away from God and an uncovering of that difficult truth behind that that perhaps we have a lack of trust in God, that God will provide for us. We don't need a hero, we need a saviour. And that saviour is Jesus. It's too easy then to see leadership as kind of an all-action hero model. We don't question what good practice looks like. We don't ask which hegemony it serves and whether it relates to what our core values are in Christ. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the phrase, um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a quote from um, Lord Acton in the early 20th century, and I, I guess some of you might know that. But it wasn't coined in the context of 
international politics or government. But he was talking about life in church. He was talking about church leadership. Now, as you prepare to welcome a new minister, what are your expectations of her? Where do those expectations come from? Are you looking for someone who will nurture and encourage you to grow in your faith and to respond together to the leadership of Christ as head of the church? Or would you rather say, what do we want? When do we want him? Recognizing anxieties and where they come from is the first point in trying to tackle them. Now the Israelites failed to do this and the story of Israel's kings is a pretty sorry one. For those of you that know your Old Testament fairly well, particularly that period in Israel's history, that long period of kings, the high points were few and far between. More often, as suggested from this passage, the turning to a king becomes a turning away from God. But the problem is there's high points and those high points are just enough for the people to long for a better day of a proper king. All right, well, this one's bad, but that one was good. Maybe we'll have a better one next time, one who, who will lead but whose leadership is marked by different qualities. A king who will inspire trust and have the power to banish anxiety. Now even so, as the Israelites anticipated the coming of that king, when Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom of heaven, it took a while for the penny to drop that these were the signs of kingship. These were the signs of a true leader, of pioneering faith and of turning the other cheek, of walking extra miles and carrying crosses, of a God who leads us to the cross and beyond. It's there and it's in Him that we can find comfort for our anxiousness to know that we do not walk alone. This is also the ministry into which all of us, as God's people, are called. Shaped by God in Christ, rather than shaped by our anxieties and the world's rubbish answers, temporary answers. Shaped by God through Jesus. Now this is an exciting time. I am excited for you at London Road for what the future holds. But as you wait, remember that the head of your church is already here. And next week marks the start of Advent. A season of waiting. What do we want? King. When do we want him? Now. Amen.
King Jesus. We declare this morning and we state this morning that it is you in whom we put our trust. You are the King of Kings. And you model for us a way to live, a way to serve, and a way to relate to one another and our world. Lord, I pray if we are suffering with anxieties this morning, whether they be ones we are conscious of or whether they are ones that are are hidden away but are having an effect upon our lives. May we bring them to you this morning. May we declare to you that we trust you to provide, trust you to lead us in the way forwards. Would you bring peace to our hearts and minds? That peace which the world cannot give. We thank you, Lord, that that power belongs to you and you alone. And we long to see more of you using that and demonstrating that in our lives. Amen. We're going to um, close our service by singing King of Kings, Majesty, God of Heaven, living in me. And as Peter said, the king that they were talking about in Samuel will just take, take, take. But it struck me that our King, our King Jesus, our God, just gives, gives, and gives. So let's stand and sing. King of Kings, Majesty.
King eternal, immortal, invisible, the beginning and the end, the one true God, be honour and glory forever and ever. May God's word be in your heart. May God's word be on your lips. May God's word be in your touch. May God's word direct your feet on this day and all your days to come. May God's word be the life you live. Amen.